Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of this show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, guys, I am so excited to bring you today's guest. We have on the show Alex Utterman, and Alex is a soul doctor. She has spent time in India learning the ways of the masters and the gurus and the stories that she tells that she apparently has never told anywhere publicly are going to give you goosebumps and chill you to the bone in the best way possible. I want you to sit back, relax, and get ready to dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Alex Utterman. How are you doing, Alex? I'm doing really well, Alex. (laughs) How are you? I think you might be the first Alex we've had on the show besides me. I don't think I've, I don't think, I don't remember it's been over 200 at this point. Uh, so I, I don't remember, but I think you might be the first. But thank you so much for coming on the show. You you have a interesting life journey and the work that you're doing is fantastic uh, and, and very, very interesting as well. You're trying to heal the world. We're both trying to heal the world in very different ways, uh, but yet very similar ways in, 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 in as well. So my first question to you is, how did you start your spiritual journey? Ah, reluctantly. <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. How much time do we have? Okay. <laughs> right. Reader's Digest version. Okay. So I was a deep skeptic. I came to it kicking and screaming, despite having a lot of um, mystical experiences as a child that made no sense and a mm-hmm. teenager. Mm-hmm. So is a, I had like one foot in the world of mysticism, but nobody talked about that and there was nowhere to put it. So I just kind of compartmentalized it and sort of tried to blend in with everybody else. I just wanted to be a normal teenager. Yeah, no chance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in my 20s, or hmm, I was not a seeker. I was living in the Bay Area in California in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And many of my friends were, you know, they were spiritual people as California. It's, you know, that's it's in the air. And uh, people would say things like, oh, this great, you know, spiritual teachers coming to the bookstore. Do you want to go hear them? And I'm like, nah, I got to wash my hair Mm -hmm. Mm, like all night. (laughs) No, (laughs) I just didn't. I didn't go looking. Things came to me or I had read about the great yogis. I had read about the great saints. I knew who the real ones were. I knew also that there was a fair amount of charlatanism in the spiritual kingdom in general and amongst guru culture and all like that so pretty much i was like nope not for me or i had read autobiography of a yogi by yogananda and i adore him and immediately felt him 
uh, I knew about TM with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. That door was kind of closed to me, even though I was surrounded by TMers and Yogananda people. I'm like, hmm, that's strange. But anyway, so I lived my life. And then I had a spiritual mentor who sort of got thrown in my lap, who was a Dutch yogi named Jack Schwartz, who had supernatural abilities mm-hmm. um, and had gotten enlightened uh, partly at Auschwitz or where he was not interned as a Jew, but rather he was um, forced into labor as a young Dutch man. When the Germans invaded the Low Countries, they they took the young men for the workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was he had tremendous supernatural abilities and was a pure love being. Or, but I never went looking for him. He got thrown in my lap. So it was a series of, I would say the divine was conspiring <laughs> to wake me up. Uh, I had a colleague who was, uh, I was working in the computer gaming industry at the time, and she was a Reiki person. She introduced me to Reiki kind of against my will. Okay. Uh, I went to her workshop because I had nothing else to do that weekend. I really went on a lark, honestly. And the moment she began the thing they call an attunement or the initiation, well, guess what? It's real. I saw energy pouring in and was kind of out of body briefly. And I'm thinking, are you kidding? This is for real? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. So by default, I became a healer. Or I should say, you know, found a technique to to um, deploy my already nascent and native healing abilities that I kind of vaguely knew were there, but didn't pay any attention to really. Um, so, so it sounds like you basically the theme I'm getting here is you were reluctant the entire way. Entirely kicking and screaming and skeptical as the day is long. And, <laughs> and anyway, so I began working as a healer and I reluctantly came to the understanding that I had come to do that. Mm-hmm was not thrilled about that on one level. And the deeper in I went with whatever random tools I had, Reiki, breath work, make it up by the seat of your pants. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Things were happening that were miraculous, but nobody seemed to have any idea why. In your life life or in general? Uh, For the healing clients that I was seeing. Remarkable things were happening. And I would say, yes, in my life, for sure. Uh, supernatural things, miraculous things, and none of it made any sense. I would go and ask the Reiki people, like, how come I do Reiki for somebody's ankle pain with a broken ankle and their ankle still hurts, but their asthma cleared up? And they'd get that mystical look and say, well, the energy takes care of itself. I'm like, okay, so you don't really know. (laughs) So I became a Reiki master to try to get to the bottom of it, and I still had no answers. That's where I was in the fall of 1999 when a guy named Jonathan Rosen came into my life. (laughs) By then, I was so sensitive and I would say psychic abilities were expanding just through being in energy and doing healing work that for some bizarre reason, I could tell if somebody had been to India simply by looking in their eyes. Mm. I couldn't tell you why. I had never been to India, but I could see India in people. And this guy came to my door. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> having been a student of Kaleshwar here, mm-hmm. uh, who was a young miracle healing saint. Uh, he, Jonathan had been a student of Kaleshwar's for about two years, and he was on a back and forth commute, uh, like a month in India, a month in US, a month in India, and a month in US. 
And he starts telling me about Kalashwar, who is a miracle healing saint who was at the time very young. He was uh, 27 when I met him. He was 24 when Jonathan had met him. And he had healed a colleague of Jonathan, a longtime TM teacher and, and uh, practitioner from a terminal lymphoma, which caught Jonathan's attention big time and made him want to study with him. So I'm hearing about this young lion of a healing master. And I'm thinking, wait a second, this is very interesting. This isn't meditating for the sake of meditating. This isn't, <sighs> you know, I hung around a lot of <clears throat> Buddhist and Vedic practitioners who were very serious, you know, many Kriyabans from the Yogananda tradition and or Zen Buddhists who were very serious meditators. And they would say things like, oh, I can't wait till I get enlightened because la, 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 la. And right. I'm like, okay, first off, what do you mean by enlightenment? If you ask 100 people, you'll get 100 different definitions. Sure. And mostly it seems they have to do with some kind of blissful feeling and then you don't have any problems, maybe. And mm -hmm. I'm like, <clears throat> okay, so first off, not interested. Secondly, once you get there, what are you going to do with it? Right. I'm restless like that. Here comes Jonathan explaining about this college bar fellow who uh, within, well, I don't know, 30 seconds manifested some ash into his friend's mouth and put some ash on his friend's third eye. And his friend had a five weeks to live prognosis for a terminal lymphoma that just disappeared. And I'm thinking, well, this is very interesting. There's a guru out there who's using the meditation energy that he's accrued over God knows how many lifetimes to shift things for people very quickly. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Mm. How does he do that? I'm interested. And that's kind of how I got. <laughs> and, and that's how you- Where I am now. And then, then you went over to India and spent some time over there. Oh, loads of things happened. So, hmm. I have to say it was a belief system struggle for me because I was so skeptical, so deeply, deeply what, what was, skeptical. Did you have a religious background? No, not at all. Okay. So uh, I was raised by, no, eight? I wouldn't go that far. Okay. Uh, I, I, I would say very cynical. Yes. Very Got heartbroken. It. Got it. Uh, an agnostic at best. Uh, I was raised by a surgeon small town surgeon and a nurse. So science was sort of the law of the house, which is great. I mean, good education and all. Mm, but the people who were worshipped in my home were uh, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr. and Albert Schweitzer, all wow. ironically enough men of great faith who were activists from their faith. Mm. So my family was like that. We were left wing up in the system, stand sure. for the little guy, no matter what. Mm -hmm. or, and the joke of the family was that mm, through crazy circumstances in our small town, I ended up going to Catholic school for eight years. <laughs> so Pretty that. sure I was the only non-Catholic in the entire history of that school. Mm -hmm. So I went to mass three days a week and I started having mystical experiences with Jesus, which were um, disturbing to say the least, because I had nowhere to put it because I wasn't. So when you say mystical Catholic. experiences, what do you mean exactly? Oh, God, man. So one of the first things that happened in Catholic school was 
the eighth grade kids every year would put on um, around Easter time, a version of the passion play, right? The passion of Christ, the last week going into the mm -hmm. crucifixion and the resurrection. And they would use music from both Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar, which meant there's an eighth grade kid in a sheet at a certain point, holding up a cross that had handles on it, <laughs> you know, going through the the last supper and the betrayal in the garden and then the crucifixion of christ and i would go unglued i mean like i wouldn't even say crying sobbing hysterically doubled over tears coming out of everywhere including my nose no. unable to breathe flipped out every time and I kind of loved it and I kind of was terrorized by it and I couldn't understand why there was this painful, ecstatic meltdown going on every time it happened. And every, all the other kids are looking at me like, you know, I'm not even Catholic or Christian overtly. Mm -hmm. So that was wild. Um, and then when I was about 12 or 13, so I had been in Catholic school since I was about seven. Um, because we went to mass three days a week. It was a Catholic church um, built in the 1800s in the French architecture style. It's, I'm from rural Missouri, and that side of the Mississippi River was settled by the French and the French uh, traders going up and down sure. the river. Sure. So everything was very white marble and, oh my God, mm, exquisite. They had a huge crucifix right over the first row of the pews in the church. I mean, a big crucifix, like Christ hugely displayed on the cross. And I would look at him and look at him and I was livid. Why did you do that? Why did you do that? I have to know. And I was so upset because I knew that he lived historically. I had no doubt about that. I knew that he had let this happen to him. I knew that. Mm -hmm. But why? Because their explanation wasn't cutting it. I knew there was more. I knew it. And so I'm like, I can remember working myself into a absolute frenzy of upset because he wasn't responding and I knew there was power in it and I couldn't, I could not understand it. And I'm hurling myself <clears throat> at Jesus in my head. Like, why did you do that? Why did you do that? Why did you do that? Why won't you answer me? You know, what? And crying and furious and <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> But then I'm about mm, maybe 13, I think, in my sophomore year. I was accelerated in school, so I was sure. like two grades ahead of myself and some things. But anyway, so um, we're in a religion class being taught by a priest who had a master's in dogmatic theology from the seminary. Didn't even know he could get a degree in dogmatic theology, but there we are. And he was teaching us from his master's notes about the four major gospels of the New Testament uh, of the Bible. It was great. Good study. Anyhow, I'm sitting there with the Bible open to one of the accounts post-crucifixion when Mary Magdalene sees Jesus in the garden exactly after crucifixion. He, she is the first person to whom he shows himself. And she doesn't recognize him. She mistakes him for a gardener. And when he makes her realize, hey, it's me, his next words to her are, woman, don't touch me. I'm not yet myself. And I'm seeing, I'm reading this, and this video plays in my head. I didn't make this up. It just started to play that she went to embrace him. She went to hug him. And he said that to her. And I'm thinking, oh, how come they don't say in here that they were married? Hmm. 
That's so obvious. Like what? What? what, sure. what how come they left all this stuff out of this book? <laughs> It'd be a much more interesting read <laughs> if they had that. The question so, of the century. Yes. <laughs> of centuries. <laughs> mm, many centuries, actually. A couple of millennia in there. Yeah. So I'm like, hmm, this is fascinating. What is going on? So these kinds of things were happening and they were alarming. And nobody else I knew was having anything near this, even though they were hmm. all Catholic kids. And it was all very confusing. And I should say, as a footnote to it, I did find out the answers to what I was so desperately asking about the crucifixion, but it took me going to India uh, to figure that out. Mm. Well, it, it took Jesus going to India too, to figure some things out yes, as well. Yes, it did, <laughs> as it turns out. And that, as it turns out, is precisely the nature of my study in India. I lived in a place where he lived and meditated and trained and left things there. So physical things, physical things. So, mm -hmm. all right. So you're in India and you, st you, mm. been, you were there for how many years? Well, I, I wound up living there for five years. So when I met Jonathan Rosen and he was telling me about Kaleshwar, then I got kind of stalked by God, I guess. Every people I met after in, there was a couple week period in there where I would say, you know, I'm hearing about this guru from India who's a healing master. Um, and they would their faces would turn into this young brown man and they'd say, yeah, what do you really want? And I'm like, okay, this is disturbing. This is 1999, so there weren't websites. You know, you couldn't go look somebody up. And at one point I met Jonathan's home and he showed me a, a photograph of Kalashwar and he went off to make tea. And I look at that photograph and I'm like, all right, man, who are you? Because I am not jumping into something if this is not like the real and the highest. You know what I'm saying? I mm -hmm. don't want, I just, oh. My disdain for all things woo-woo <laughs> was pretty pronounced. Right. And I'm like, all right, straight up, show me who you are. And the picture came alive. I mean, three-dimensional, it's a person, and it's talking to me. And I'm just like, really? Really? You found me? It has mm -hmm. to be now, huh? Really? <laughs> so yeah so then and jonathan had told me it was very interesting kaleshwar's position in the world he he was known as a miracle healing saint and he demonstrated a lot of in-your-face miracles i mean crazy miracles um and you know traditionally the yogis are like yeah don't look at that that's not important don't don't focus on the miracles they can turn into a big egoism trap and also there are plenty of people who are not enlightened but they have some Siddhi. They did right. some mantra, they can talk to snakes or they can manifest something or whatever, but it does, it's not a mark of an enlightened soul. And that opens the door to a lot of charlatanism and like that. So the, the traditional dignified yogic stances, let's not focus on the miracles. Sure, they happen, but mm -mm. which is a curious thing because 2000 years later, we're still talking about the miracles that Jesus did. Right, exactly. We're still talking about it. I mean, I Why just had did a, he demonstrate like I, that? I just had a conversation with a yogi the other day, and we were talking, and I'm like, isn't it amazing that basically what Jesus was doing 2,000 years ago were yogic powers? Yes, exactly. They, they were all yogic powers. These yes. are all things that saints and yogis have been known prior to Jesus and after yes. Jesus. Yes. These, these powers. So it, it's just yes. fascinating, to say the least. Yes. and. He learned them. That's the important piece that humanity is missing. Mm -hmm. 
He learned yeah. them. Well, that was the thing. That's the thing. And I, I've said this in the show before. It's like Jesus was born, yada, yada, yada. He comes and starts to save everybody. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. The yada, yada, yada is the part that I always was wondering about myself. Yes, me too. And there's, a, there's like, and then as I've talked to more and more spiritually enlightened people and done my own studies, even someone like Yogananda, who's in most more recent times, um, he, he didn't come in fully formed. None of them do. No. They all, some of them come in young mm -hmm. and they make it fully formed younger than everybody else, but they still have to go through stuff prior, prior to their enlightenment here yes. to achieve a certain level. All of them yes. do. Must. Because, yeah. You can't just show up and go, I'm, I am here to save no. you all. It doesn't, no. it's kind of not the way the, the, the world works in uh, in this this reality correct there, there is a level that you have to kind of level up if you will correct you know yes actually one of the linchpins of that is you have to find a master who can open your channels and if your channels are extraordinary as in the case of a jesus or a yogananda or a mahavatar babaji that has to be an exceptional master as well and there aren't that many of them that's a key do, point but they do appear when they when when, oh, when there's a soul or when there's mm -hmm. a, a soul that needs that uh, babaji will yes. show up uh, of course or yogananda will show up or uh, of course jesus will show up these uh, these course. are to help along the way whether in meditation <laughs> whether in you know however they come up they do they yes. do they do show no question yes they do there's no question um yeah it's really it's a really fascinating thing so because uh, i mean i love that you your path because it I, I haven't spent time in india but i have studied a lot of the same people you've studied uh yeah. and i've had you know yogis on before and it's fascinating mm -hmm. to talk to yogis at a deep level about yes these deeper conversations now you're in, you're over there in india you're learning healing techniques I, I mean, this is a tough question to answer, but what is the biggest takeaway from your time oh in India? Oh, my God. Okay, well, I want to proceed that with two things that happened before I got to India. The The first thing was that when Jonathan was telling me about Kaleshwar, and I was kind of all ears, which was the play of the guru, of course, um, one of the things that he said that was really tough for me to digest initially was... Kaleshwar's position is this, and I, and I heard uh, Swami Kaleshwar say this himself, which was, mm, yes, I have supernatural abilities. That's true. I did very hard work to gain these. If you're willing to do the hard work, I'm willing to teach everything that I know. Because the world sorely needs supernatural spiritual masters who can handle the heartbreak and the suffering of this planet at a very high level. He didn't want devotees. He didn't want hundreds of thousands of people clinging to him. Yes, they did anyway, but he wasn't for the masses. He came to the U.S. He came to Germany. He came to Japan. He came to a few other countries. He would fish the particular souls that he wanted. He would lure them to India. <laughs> the fishing uh, mm -hmm. lure uh, metaphor holds. And there the real work would start. So when I'm hearing this, I think part of my soul was thrilled because I think my soul already knew, hey, you can be a master. 
And the rest of me, my entire belief system was so dead set against that uh, for all the reasons, you know, ranging from uh, profound unworthiness through, no, there's only a few masters in the world, da, 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 da. And, and who is this upstart young 27-year-old saint who suddenly come to upend everything? Uh, so that was kind of a, a hurdle to get over. And of course, the divine being what it is, Jonathan says to me, well, he's coming to the U.S. in a couple of weeks. Do you want to meet him? <laughs> yeah, you think? Of course. Sure. Of course. And so I actually met him initially at Kaleshwar in the fall of 1999 in Seattle. In fact, I met him in the SeaTac baggage claim uh, airport baggage claim area, which was pretty funny. Uh, and immediately, of course, I mean, I already knew him on the subtle for some weeks prior to meeting him in person. So it was sort of like, oh, right, that's your physical. Mm -hmm, OK, but I already knew him internally and I knew that that contract was signed, done, sealed, delivered, which, again, as I say, was quite disturbing to me because I wasn't so sure I was down with that. Now, let, me um, ask you, let me ask you a question, because I always sure. love asking this of, of people who've met masters. Mm. Um, there is an energy that they put out mm. that is intoxicating for people <laughs> um, that people just want to stand around them. They just literally just want to sit there all day around them. Did he have that kind of energy or did he kind of hold that back? Depends on the master. Right. It is. Like I was, I was asking. So, for you him, know. Yes. So my experience of him is that he could turn it on and off at will. Majority, he kept it off. And what I experienced around him was he was shockingly intense, incredibly <laughs> intense, like somebody put a live tiger in the room. Yeah. He was slight. He was shorter than I. I'm five, five and a half. His energy would fill an entire room. He was super relaxed and informal and joking around. And also there was no doubt who's in charge in this room. Uh, stunning. And I, I remember looking at him initially and thinking like, is that real? Because there's such a glowingness. He's almost translucent. Is he solid? Is he physical? Oh, yeah. Okay, he is. Hmm. Interesting. So in his case, yeah, he, he. I think when you're around a magnitude of a being like that, if you had any glimpse of what they really are, you would be so dumbstruck that you couldn't interact with them. And right. he the vibration so high. Train us. Right. Yeah. Well, and the intimidation factor would just be like, oh, oh my God. Like, I'm not worthy. <laughs> so they have to disguise that in a way to be able to be interacted with. So I met him in U.S. I saw him do extraordinary things in the U.S. And one of the points that he would make, uh, a couple of things. One, that the miracles that he demonstrated were, he would call them chocolates for children. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he would say, you know, if you have something serious to say to a child, you won't get their attention. You give them a piece of chocolate first, you have their attention for five minutes. And so many of the cities and the miraculous things that he did uh, were along those lines to get a soul to pay attention to him for longer than five minutes so that he could give it some energy to wake it up. Point one. Point two, um, he would say, 
I want to train soul doctors who can handle the broken hearts of humanity. You know, we have plenty of hospitals for broken minds. We have plenty of hospitals for broken um, bodies. Mm -hmm. We really don't have the hospital for the broken hearts, nor do we have the practitioners who know how to help heal the brokenheartedness of the world, which is, by the way, the number one disease that humanity is facing. 90% of human beings are so heartbroken through loss. But when you say heartbroken, you mean loss, trauma, things like that. All of it. Yes. Not romance. I, oh, that's certainly in there. But, mm-hmm. you know, anyone who grows up in a war zone, anyone who has lost Abuse of family. Them, sure. Yeah. Betrayal. Yeah, yeah. Betrayal yeah. in business, betrayal in friendship, uh, heartbreak with God. I've had a hard life. How could you do this to me? Right. Mm. Right. Betrayal with religious figures or teachers, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I put my all into them and they turned out to be a charlatan who made off with everybody's money and we're all screwed. How could that happen? It's, it's heartbreaking. All of these things. Um, and just as every human being is slightly different configuration, right? We're snowflakes. No two are alike. Mm-hmm. The way that we process pain, trauma, heartbreak, and so on is slightly different. And toward that end, if you're a physician on that level, just like a medical physician would need to know the full range of conditions to know also what medicines to prescribe to treat something, a soul doctor would need to know the full spectrum of human suffering and the formulas to be able to address that. And that was my training in India. So what was the biggest, instead of what was the biggest takeaway in India, what was your Mm. biggest takeaway from him? Mm. That anybody who wants to work hard can learn the same abilities and can demonstrate the highest level of healing, which is, I think, soul healing in this planet and help clean up the mess of suffering. So you mean, I think that's the highest thing that I can say. So you mean to tell me it's exactly what Jesus says, everything I can do. All these works you'll do, you will do in greater. And if you go back and look at the Hebrew and the Aramaic for works. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Yeah, it's miracles. He wasn't saying be nice. He's very specific in Mm -hmm. in his native language. All these works I did, you will do in greater. Um, Yes. So I saw Kaleshwar in Seattle in various situations with different groups of people, his own students, and then other spiritual mm, movements had invited him to give talks. I also saw him around management people from Boeing and uh, Microsoft. Uh How'd that Um, work out? It was hilarious. He was on the surface more like a Tony Robbins character, you know, and yet he was pumping out so much energy doing healing for these crazy skeptical souls that the everybody was like rope-a-doping in the room. They could not keep their eyes open. They're getting heavy and thick and going into a trance and trying to hear what he's saying. And on the surface, he's just this urbane, lovely, nice messages guy. And at the depth, he's putting out this incredible vibrate. It was really funny. And then I saw him in Northern California. So I had seen him with all these different people. I was really observing, you know, who's mm-hmm. this guy and how does he operate? In Northern California, he gave a beautiful talk in a place called Laytonville in Mendocino County, uh, where their local physician had been a college war student for a couple of years. And the town was pretty up in arms because they felt their doctor was being stolen by this exotic Indian goose chase guy. (laughs) So they all came out to see like, all right, who is this, you know, so-called saint who's stolen our physician? Mm, Anyway, he gave a talk that night and then he asked everybody in the hall, do you want a healing? Which he would always do after a public talk. and. 
Of course, everybody said yes. And so he had him turn off all the lights. He was just this little guy. I was sitting way in the back. Little guy sitting on a stage with a candle and some flowers around him. And he started to recite a mantra. He he had mentioned the heartbreak again. Hmm. And as he said this mantra, I felt like a, it was a fireball in my heart. It just was hot. I'm like, what? And then it started to spread. Like when you take a, a shot of hard alcohol, it, you get that warming, but it went everywhere. And then I just went blank. I was gone, completely gone, black out, gone. Okay. When I came to sometime later, I'm dimly becoming aware that my body's rotating, which is strange. I had been a meditator for some years and I'm like, okay, I've never had that experience before. I'm like going in semicircles here. I'm like, what? In the dark, pin drop silence. Everybody's still in this healing meditation thing. And then I'm like, hmm, and my shirt is damp. That's strange. Did he throw something on us like rose water, which I had seen him do already? I open an eye. He's just sitting absolutely immobilized. No. Oh, there are tears rolling down my, oh my God, I've been crying for a while. Attached to nothing. I wasn't even there. But enough that my shirt is noticeably damp. I'm like, what? And then as I become aware of this, I hear the people around me in the dark going. And I'm like, oh my God, with one mantra, one mantra, he hit 400 people in the heart. Instantly. Mm. That was the real miracle. And to me, I was like, I know I already promised you I would come to India. But this, I would follow you to the ends of the earth to learn how to bring that much relief to people like that. Mm. That was like, that felt like that sealed it for me. Um, and so within, within a month and change, I was on a plane to India for in December of 1999 for the first time. Wow. And that's where the gloves came off. Like I had seen him in U.S. manifest objects out of thin air. I had seen him manifest ash out of his fingertips. I had seen him based an entire group of singers with ash that they didn't even know. He was standing behind them and like it was like snowing on them. They didn't even know. They were in such a bliss. I had seen, I knew that he had healed people from serious illnesses. I had seen him give transmissions of energy that were like, I was seeing the origins of creation. I mean, I had seen a lot by then. And in India, oh my God. The was... scale, oh my God. <laughs> wow. It, I kind of feel like I should tell the story please. what happened at Christmas 1999. Sure, please. It is it is wild. But I I I warn you. Um okay. So India was a shock to me. Last place in the world I ever wanted to go. So of course I'm on a plane to India in mid-December 1999 for Christmas. Christmas program in South India. Okay. So we converge on his ashram which is out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's a place called Penukonda. Penokonda is a small, small-ish village, about 30,000 people, or maybe like three and a half hours to the northeast of uh, Bangalore. Big, big city, high-tech center and all that. Okay. So we're out there in the middle of nowhere. It's a half-constructed ashram at this point. I mean, he was 27. <laughs> he's just like putting buildings so and he's a, he's and... a He's kind of a kid. He was a total kid, one level. Yeah. A complete kid. And then this, oh my God, this infinite yeah. ancient soul that sat in there sometimes i would sit and chat with him you know 
And the advice he gave a young woman like me was like a 90 year old grandmother would give. And I'm like, whoa, who is talking right now? How do you know all of this? Huh? Well, so we're, um, we were like 150 people from worldwide, from mm, America, from Germany and Japan, mostly or with like some Austrians and some other European countries in there, but majority Americans and Germans. Very interesting karmic un undoing there, you know? And uh, he is lecturing. Oh my God. Okay. First off, let me say the energy of Pentaconda. I've never been in a place like this in my life. The energy is so strong that I could not actually function for days. I could barely walk around. It felt like walking in a waking dream through walls of molasses. Mm. Could just the energy is so thick. Like, what is this place? And it's escalating every day. It's slightly ramping up. And I'm like, how can this be? What is this place? Oh, my God. You know, people talk about Sedona or Machu Picchu or whatever. Panaconda is its own unbelievable place. Mm -hmm. uh, very strong with the energy of Mother Divine in particular. Like, mm -hmm. oh, my God. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's weird. And I'm experiencing that and then every day he's lecturing like oh i don't know six hours a day the exact mechanism uh, precisely how to heal every condition you can imagine for humanity i mean literally somebody comes with depression anxiety here's this mantra here's this formula here's this way to draw mother divine's energy to help someone who's suffering in such a way if someone's been afflicted by black magic here's how you help them and all of this knowledge he was getting wasn't he wasn't making this up he was getting it from ancient manuscripts written on palm leaves by ancient rishis that were like 2,000, 5,000, seven-year-old texts that he would decipher because they wrote in code. He would see what's relevant right now for the world and the people right now. And then he would test it. If it worked, he'd give it to us. So this was a soul science, as uh, Yukteswar would say. He's not messing around. Okay. And I'm thinking, Finally, somebody knows the exactitude of how to heal precisely. This is, I mean, it was like medical school. Right. I couldn't write fast enough. It was so thrilling. And every day he's saying, and Jesus studied these same mantras. He knew these same techniques. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? I knew about Jesus in India. I had no problem with that. It made sense to me. Even since a little kid, one of my older sisters had mentioned it when I was quite young, mm -hmm. that that was a rumor around in the 60s, you know? Of course. Um, I was like, okay, sure, why not? But he's talking about Jesus in a very specific way. And I'm like, <clears throat> okay. First, I'm like, are you talking about Jesus? Because that makes this wild tradition of miracles a little more acceptable to the Western palate, mostly Christianized nations, you know, Germany and uh, US. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, every time he talks about Jesus, there's an energy. And that energy is very intimate. I'm like, wait a second, he knows him. Oh, the plot thickens. Okay. I mean, really knows him. Okay. And then he says, on Christmas Day, with the blessing of Jesus, I'm going to do a huge miracle in cooperation with Christ. I'm like, what's a big miracle? Because I've seen him do some pretty radical things by now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> really supernatural, really out of the box. Okay. Christmas Day comes along. He grabs four men, 
Jonathan, who was by then my partner, we had become an item like super quick, of course, uh, takes them out, shows them a tree, says, saw off these branches, uh, rather big, thick branches, about five feet pieces. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Mm. Debark them one notch, one nail, build across. Okay. Now that's just plain eerie. We all know a cross is being constructed on the ashram. There's maybe 150 of us. So it's everybody knows everything is going on, right? The energy was so off the charts. I remember like the air was sparkling. Like I could mm. visibly see, I don't see things. I could see the air like luminous the whole day. I'm like, oh my God. They finished by the night because they had like Swiss army knives and a hammer or some ridiculous. I mean, we're out in the middle of nowhere. There's no tools. <laughs> Deep barking. Um, they bring the cross into um, the main temple there. It's propped against the altar. It's about, it's a little less than five feet tall, I think. Okay. Eerie, strange. Uh, we all lit candles, 150 candles on the altar. Oh my God. It is so divine. Mm -hmm. It's a festival time. So all the women are wearing red uh, saris. In South India, you wear red when it's a big festival. Mm -hmm. Jasmine in the hair. So everything is like, oh my God, reeking of jasmine. And the men are all in whites. It is angelic, right? Kalashwar came out and gave a talk about Jesus. Majority of which I remember he said the following, Jesus Christ is the greatest healer who has ever walked on this planet in its entire history. And all of us, saints, supernatural, yogis, whatever, we bow to him. He did things no one before or since has ever done. And I'm thinking, I can't even begin to understand that. I'm going to file that away for later contemplation. Oh, my God. And then after that, he takes the four men and the cross out of the building, destination unknown, leaving the rest of us there to meditate on Jesus. And I got to say, the second that cross went out, oh my God, it just descended. The, the energy was just in the room, like a, like a velvet curtain had come down of pure silence, pure love, so blissful. And I remember thinking, Oh, this is you? Oh, how funny. I've known this my whole life. I've known this mm. feeling. I know you. I didn't know this was had the name Jesus attached to it, you know. Um, and then after about 25 minutes, maybe, I don't know. It could be 45. I don't know. It's a while. We're meditating. Mm. Mm -hmm. There's no time space, whatever. There's this commotion in the back. And some of the nervous uh, German ladies are like <laughs> gasping. And I flip around because I was sort of up toward the front. And I see Kalashwars come in the room. His whites are stained with blood around the cuffs, bright red blood. I'm like, whoa, what? He comes up to the front of the room, sits in his chair, guzzles liters of water. Never saw him do that before or since. And I'm like, is he showing stigmata? Because a few days before, somebody had explained to him what stigmata was. And he was mm -hmm. like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I'm like, I'm reduced to looking for, are there holes in his feet? I'm not sure I can handle that. Nope, mm -hmm. there are no holes holes in his feet. Okay. Where'd the blood come from? No. And then I look in his eyes and they are like, I don't know who it is, but it's not him. I knew him pretty well by then. And I was like, 
oh my God, who is that? His eyes were blazing. They were like supernovas. I've never seen anything like this in my life. They were universes of fire. Wow. Which explains the guzzling liters of water, I suppose. I'm like, what? Then after some time, he says, go get the four guys. They bring in the men. They are covered in blood. I mean, head to toe spattered like bad B movie special effects spattered. And they're all wearing white. So it's dramatic, right? And on top of that, their faces are so emanating light that I can't make out their features. And Jonathan, by then, was my my partner. I couldn't have recognized him. It was blinding. I'm like, what? So you've got this red blood and this white light. I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> and he has them sit up on the altar at the feet of a, a very large uh, living statue of Shirdi, Sai Baba, his master. And they're meditating. And we're, I can't speak for anybody else, but I was jumping out of my skin. Like, what happened? Where did all this blood come from? What is this? And I'm realizing as we're sitting, looking at these four bloodied guys emanating all this light that we're receiving the energy that they're transmitting of what just happened by just simply looking at them. Okay. And then finally, after an eternity, College Bar says, okay, guys, tell what happened. So they had taken the cross down to a um, a subterranean, it's like a basement kind of thing. He called it a Shiva cave mm-hmm. where there was basically it's a square room with a slate floor, one light bulb, rickety stairs going down under the ground. and um, and rather large, I mean, large, uh, ancient stone Shivalingam is there. Okay. 2,000-year-old Shivalingam. And he had them hold the cross. Or Because it didn't have a base, it was just... Um, he put Jonathan, who was fairly burly, to sit on the ground, cross his leg, put the cross between his legs, hold it between his arms, and don't let go because it couldn't fall during this process. One guy holding a crossbeam, one guy holding a crossbeam, the other one touching that ancient Shivalinga. And they said, then Kalashwar very softly began to say some mantras. And they were like, we've never heard these. This is a very mantra-heavy tradition. Nobody knew these mantras. And then he's clapping. And that's when the blood started to come out of the heart of the cross. It just wells up. And Jonathan said, it's dripping on my face. Drip, drip. It's getting in his eye. It's getting in his mouth. It's like, oh my God what is this? Then it's like a faucet that is like a stream. And then Jonathan said it was like a a, 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 a fire hose. It just starts deluging blood everywhere, which explained quite a lot about why they were all so bloody. And Jonathan, who was a TM meditator and practitioner and teacher for 30 years at that point, minimum three hour a day meditations, minimum. 30 years, never missed a day. He used to do the 18-month programs in the Swiss Alps with Maharishi. I mean, this guy was a strong yogi, a real yogic soul. He said, the energy filled me up in two seconds. I couldn't hold it. I thought it was going to explode. Oh my God. And then came a thought, not his thought, that said, send it. And he said, every single person he had ever met in his entire life flashed in his third eye. And the energy was just going to them and blessing them, blessing everything, whatever they need. And the blood is gushing and he's like people and people and people and people at his third eye. And he runs out of individuals. <laughs> then it goes to organizations. He had been a management consultant with Fortune 100 and 500 companies, universities, hospitals. Same thing. It's blessing everybody what they need. He said it was like a fire hose, a pure, unconditional love that would accept no resistance. Wow. 
oh my God. And then they got called up. So that's what happened. So Kalashwar looks at Jonathan and says, hey, Jonathan, did you ever feel while you were holding the cross that it turned into a person? Jonathan said, well, Swami, are you asking me, do I feel Jesus was there? Yes, I'm pretty sure Jesus was there. <laughs> uh, did I feel the wood like turn to flesh? No. Kalashwar said for 20 seconds, he was there physically. Jonathan, being Jonathan, said, but Swami, I'm a Jew from Brooklyn. <laughs> I don't even know anything about Jesus, really. Like, yeah, I know he's an ascended master. I respect him as a great teacher of the planet, but I don't feel that I have any connection with him. Why am I involved in this? Kalashwar is laughing and he says, wait, just wait. And so what happens is we get sent down in small groups, 10 to 15 people to go experience this, to see it for ourselves. And the instruction was touch the blood. I'm in the last group. It's probably an hour since the whole thing happened. I'm guessing. I mean, 150 people in groups of 10, that's going to take a while. As we're running out the door of the temple, we hear Kalashwar say, tell the people to hurry. I can't keep this channel open much longer or I will start to bleed internally. Dude, we're like racing down the stairs. We get to the thing. We're down this little Shiva cave under the ground. There's a group ahead of us. I remember thinking, you need to flip on your journalist mind and record every detail of this because this you don't ever want to forget. So the scene is the cross is leaning against the wall near the Shiva Lingam. The cross is spattered in blood. The wall is spattered in blood. There are dark places where it's clotting. Coming off of the cross is about, I don't know, a nine or 10 foot river of blood. It's a lot of blood. I've never seen that much blood in one place in my life. It's probably, I don't know, foot and a half, two feet wide and probably about yay deep. And there's light all over it. Oh my God. Again, I don't see things. Like it, you really have to knock me over the head for me to see stuff. Mm -hmm. There's light dancing all over this. As I'm staring at the cross. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It's still welling up at the heart and almost imperceptibly still trickling. I'm like, oh my God, that thing is still active. The group ahead of us are on their hands and knees with their hands in this river of blood. Ah, oh, it makes sense. Touch the blood, right? The absolute holiness in that room. Unspeakable. And mm. I know without knowing how I know that this is the blood of Jesus Christ. Mm. How is that possible? I couldn't tell you, but there is absolutely no doubt in my mind. So then the group ahead of us gets up and leaves, and now it's our turn to get down on our knees and put our hands in this unlock. How did I get here? Who am I to do this? Mm. To touch the blood of a holy divine soul like that, it's one of the highest transmissions you can receive in your life. Mm -hmm. We carry a lot of our karmic and our soul essence in the blood. Hence, shedding the blood for humanity, Lamb of God, etc. Why he had to shed blood on the cross and all that. I'm like, ah, to connect to Christ like this? <clears throat> okay, well, he told us to put our hands, so I just do. Okay. And it dries and it's sticky and it's blood and like that, right? That night, a colleague of mine goes down to clean up with buckets and towels. Can you imagine? Wringing out all that into buckets, pouring it in the garden. And while he's scrubbing the floor, uh, he looks up and he sees Jesus standing there in front of him. Mm -hmm. 
And he said, the weird thing was it was so normal. And then for the whole night, my friend can't sleep. He's just shaking. I mean, like as you would, as one would with the magnitude of a divine soul like that. Um, People who had severe illnesses, chronic problems, they touched that blood, cleared that night, done, finished. Later that night, Kaleshwar said, yeah, you guys, you need to burn any of the clothing that got spattered from the men who were there and also the cross itself. He said, put it in my fire pit, burn it. Everyone will get the ash from that fire pit. He said that blood is so powerful. If somebody had a mind to misuse it in the world, they could create unspeakable havoc. No way. No. Smart guy. Didn't trust his students. Very good. And uh, so they burned the cross. We got the ash, which I still have. and I still use for healing and I put on people for healing and so on. Next day, we're sitting out under a tree with Kalashwar and he's like a, he's like a five-year-old. He's so jolly and so kicked back and so giggly. And I, I cannot reconcile this guy with the blazing eyes character I'd seen the night before. And he's like, yeah, so why? He's sitting on a swing. He has like a cane swing hanging from a tree. You know, Why would I make a cross bleed on Christmas Day? That's a little weird, isn't it? And I had been thinking that, that juxtaposition of birthday and instrument of whatever, torture and death, if you want to call it that. And a German colleague of mine, without missing a beat, said, Oh, because no baby comes into this world without blood. Uh, <laughs> Kalashwar said, exactly. This is Christmas 1999. In one week, it will be the change of the millennium to 2000. For the last 2000 years, Jesus's presence and energy on this planet has been very back, dormant. Once we cross into the new millennium, his energy will come up super strong. The exact nature of his life and his times in India will be restored to humanity, as will the precise mechanisms of the healing miracles and the enlightenment channels that he received. And we have opened that door here with this cross bleeding. Pretty powerful. I can't even tell you to be front row seat to that in the middle of rural India Coming as I did from a skeptical background. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, skeptic no more, obviously. I'm, that's, uh, an ama- that's an amazing story. And, yes. and your journey has been um, interesting, to say the least. No kidding. Um, Good Lord. <laughs> if, people are, if people are watching this video, uh, <laughs> this interview, or this conversation, the energy just coming off the images off on your background are, are fairly strong a little bit a little bit just by the energy of the of the saints that you have hanging on the wall behind you Um, yes it's been a pretty interesting conversation to say the least there's one thing that you um talk about and i'm not sure how long it'll take you to kind of explain it Mm -hmm. um the holy womb chakra oh yeah can you because we've basically just taken most of this conversation to talk about your journey I would like to talk at least one healing thing, modality, if you will, of what you do uh, in the world today. So can you talk a little bit about the Holy Womb and what is the Holy Womb Chakra? I can. And I can say, so I spent five years studying this sort of PhD level of miraculous healing and spirituality with Swami Kaleshwar, which led us to experience Mother Divine as Mahakali directly, like in person, like meeting her. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
in order to command and unlock the energy of the miracles, we need to know who is our real mother. Where did our soul really come from? Mm -hmm. In the same way that every human child has the right to know their human, their biological mother, mm -hmm. we have as souls the right to know who is the divine mother and not intellectually and not in a vision or a hallucination, but eyes open, seeing a solid form of mother. We need to know the womb where we were created. Mm -hmm. Every So hmm, that happened. <laughs> um, and along the way, he gave a system. He gave he taught umpteen systems of miraculous energy, of learning different aspects of how our creation operates, like really at the nuts and bolts level of energy, if you if you like that term. Mm. And how to how to understand it as a outgrowth of the energy of the Mother Divine and of Shiva and of their, let's say, romance that creates this whole creation. Okay. Mm. So we were all schooled in that. And then he brought out this thing called the Holy Womb Chakra in 2006. Two th um, it's a 7,000-year-old technology from one of those ancient uh, manuscripts written on dried palm leaves. And it's all about this incredible doorway into our enlightenment and our capability as souls on this planet called the Holy Womb, which everybody has, male and female both. Mm -hmm. You don't generally see it in the books on chakras and where they define things and la, la, la. Yeah, they don't. They left this one out. Um, it is located variously. It's kind of interesting. There is a chakra like sitting sort of behind all the chakras, uh, which is more or less where a woman's physicalized womb is. Mm -hmm. However, it's also part of our soul. And men, through the womb chakra, each individual person has like a spark, right? Of the big light, you could say. That spark connects to the big light, the big source of the mother through this mystical doorway called the womb chakra. So women go directly through it because they have it physicalized, which is also how we create life, right? We can conceive a child. Mm -hmm. We can even do it without a man like Mother Mary or the way Ram was created out of a fire ceremony mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> through the womb chakra. Okay. Uh, men are a step removed. They go through their physical birth mother to connect to the womb chakra of mother divine. So number one, in our relationship with the cosmic mother, all of the miraculous abilities are there. All of the understanding of the creation is there. Whatever she can do, we can do. But it gets muddied and distorted because this plays into Yogananda's teachings very nicely. The womb chakra is, I think, what we would call the causal body in his parlance, which is where all the karmas are stored lifetime to lifetime to lifetime to lifetime to lifetime. Mm -hmm. And from where they come due in the course of a given life. Let's say you see a small child with a terminal illness. They didn't create any karma this life. Why are they having that system? Why is that happening? Previous lifetimes where they created enormous heartbreak and suffering for other human beings. It's like all come together and through the womb chakra has gotten spit out in this lifetime as a large karmic bill to be paid with interest. Here's the kicker. If you know the technology of the holy womb chakra, very good chances you can heal somebody in that predicament. You can reverse it. Mm. Kalashwar would say, yeah, four out of five cancer patients, he would say, I can heal them. And we saw that all the time. Terminal, horrible, last ditch. He would say the, the fifth one, no, mother won't permit. Karma is what it is. They have to experience it. But when you know the womb chakra, when you have yourself a very strong, stable womb chakra through doing, it's a meditation system and it involves drawing a 
There's a certain yantra that corresponds to the individual womb chakra. There's a whole technology and a whole system around it. It is so miraculous. Um, and the the ripple effects are gigantic. Um, but when, when one practices that system. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Then there are certain healing abilities that already start to get unlocked from that. Also, we're cleaning up our own crazy karmic uh, balance sheet in the process of doing those meditations, those mantras, and the the yantra technology. Kalashmar would also say, and this plays into Jesus and his mother. It's very interesting. He would say the two strongest womb chakras our planet has ever seen are Mother Mary and Jesus. And what we know from some manuscripts that Jesus left behind in South India, or is that Mother Mary herself had extraordinary divine channels. She was not an innocent 15-year-old girl who got hit in the head with an angel and then suddenly had a baby. Mm -hmm. She was like Kali. She had meditated millions of lifetimes to gain that lifetime. When she has Christ in her womb as a little human being baby developing, she's already teaching him all the layers of the creation. So it is true. When he came out, he was a little bit extraordinary, but still he needed a physicalized guru to open his channels for which he went to India, as I think we all know in the last years. But she was his first guru. She gave him information through her unbelievably strong womb chakra. And the plot thickens when he goes through the crucifixion and it's time to wake him up, to bring his soul back into his body. She's the one who does it through her physicalized, very, very divine, direct line to Mother Divine's capability, womb chakra. Which makes so much sense. Mechanistically and every other which way. So there's a technique. So there's a technique on how to activate it, how to understand it, all this mm -hmm. kind of stuff as well. Yeah, I teach it. Mm -hmm. Um. So I, I could say, so he gave us many systems over the years, dozens of systems with mantras and yantras and different ways to approach the healing energy and different sort of specialties of these different healing systems. Uh, I teach them all. <laughs> mm -hmm. But the womb chakra is a kind of central, amazing healing system. It, it, it is really powerful, both for self-healing, obviously, from any kind of traumas, heartbreaks, uh, cynicism, etc. Er, and to be able to turn around and use that energy to heal other people very powerfully at this sort of fundamental level of what we call the womb chakra. Now, did he pass already? Oh, yeah, yeah. He took off in uh, 2012. No, on the Ides of March. How old he was 39. Was he? Yeah, he was a young man. He was. He was a young man when he left. Yes. Yeah, I was surprised he made it that long, to be honest. Why? Mm, since I met him in 1999, he was like, oh, I'm looking for the exit. <laughs> He did not want to be in the body. He freaking hated being in the body. Ugh. And he would say, I will be so much more powerful when I take samadhi, when I'm out of the body. I, I have to come physically. I have to endure this. I have to hook you guys up to certain things. And then I am out of here. And I really think he thought it would be faster. And why, did, why did he choose to come down then? Oh, it's his duty. He can't escape it. He has to. He had to come down. Has to. Yes. Um, Alex, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I know we can definitely keep going for another four <laughs> or five hours without question. No doubt. Um, uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions I ask all of my guests. Sure. What is your definition of living a good life? 
For whom? For yourself. For me? Yes, as a person. What is your definition of living a good life as a person? Oh, being of service to other people and helping as much as I can. What is your mission in this? Uh, I mean, uh, how do you define God? How do I define God? Yes. G-O-D. Generating, operating, destroying. Pure love. Mm -hmm. Behind yes. it, but generating, operating, destroying. The cycles of the energy of things coming into form, things going away from form, things coming up, things dissolving constantly. It's in constant motion. It's not a static principle. And what is the ultimate purpose of life? Service to others. And where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Ah, multiple places. But the easiest entree is uh, my, or my organization called the Universal Church of Baba's Kitchen. It's great branding. Whole other great, great crazy branding. story. <laughs> mm. But uh, it's uh, the uh, initials. The acronym is UCBK.org. And everything is there. There are uh, many. Um, I do some live uh, teaching still, and there are a lot of pre recorded, all the color swore systems, like the basic levels of things, including the Holy Womb Chakra system, is there. People can learn it. Um, and I'm also, for the last couple of years, I've had a one year mastery program running with a handful of students or that I'm working incredibly, you know, intimately and immersively and directly with to bring them up as fast as I can to be able to handle this kind of energy, to do the miraculous healings and to be able to share and teach some of the basic systems as well. So that's the bulk of my focus these days. Mm -hmm. Or, however, we also do live satsangs every Thursday via Zoom, mm -hmm. and they're recorded for later listening, whatever. We also do um, Kaleshwar. In making masters, the idea is that it's someone who can be a master of the five elements of nature. The earth, the fire, the sky, the water, the air. Nama Shivaya. Mm -hmm. And toward that end, uh, the training in the elements is very deep and very mystical. We use the fire element every full moon and new moon doing fire homas, you know, yagyas, uh, like the the bosses on yes, behind, behind you there doing their beautiful uh, fire homa or agnihotra. Uh, so we do very high powered uh, fire homas, which we live stream. And everybody's welcome to attend from all over the world. Uh, we get quite an audience and the energy is like knock you down from those fire homas. So we do a lot. And uh, however, you know, we can help spread the healing information and the, the knowledge and the exact mechanisms, mm -hmm. you know, exactly what Jesus studied in India. Exactly. We have the same source material, the ancient <laughs> palm leaf books from those rishis and are going through systematically. Kaleshwar would say, you know, I want to create the Jesus generations on this planet generations of souls who can handle the miracle energy to the same level that christ did literally bringing to life all these works i did you will do and more kaleshwar would say he told his students that didn't he but when hmm. two thousand year cycle now we're in it now it starts and do you have any final words for the audience gosh um You know, I think everybody should taste the divine energy for themselves directly mm -hmm. in our lives. Reading about it is one thing. 
Meditating is one thing. Tasting the dynamism of God in motion through miracle energy, through doing healing, through being of service on that level, having a palpable direct experience of God. Um, we all have that birthright. And I think my wish, my hope is that anyone who's really interested in, in you know, tasting it directly, you can sit on the side of a swimming pool and read a book about swimming, but you're not going to know swimming. Right. Right. <laughs> so you jump in the water. You can put a toe in the water and that gives you an idea, but you still don't know how to swim. So my, my wish is that more and more people will get interested in, well, what, how do you actually swim in these divine waves? And how can we do that and then teach other people that? That's, that's my wish for humanity. And short of that, everyone should be blessed and happy. Alex, thank you so much for this amazing conversation and for the work that you're doing in the world. I really, truly, truly appreciate you. Thank you again. Back at you, Alex. <laughs> mirror, mirror. <laughs> I want to thank Alex so much for coming on the show and sharing her stories with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 225. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.